Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Good morning, it's Peter Oborn here. It's a freezing cold morning in Chiswick, West London. Good morning, it's uh, Richard Heller in very similar conditions in South East London. And we have a very interesting and distinguished guest today, the historian of early football, association football, who has written the most learned book about how uh, modern football emerged in the in England, chiefly in the 19th century. Um, and what the reason we want to bring Richard in, Richard Sanders in, is, is, is not simply his learning, but also to make the very interesting comparisons which exist between the emergence of, of football and the emergence of cricket uh, at a slightly earlier stage in a rather a different way. Is that a right, the right way of describing it, Richard? That's right. Well, thank you very much for having me, Peter, and, and you, Richard. That's right. My, my book, which I wrote some time ago now, uh, is a book about the origins of football. And, and, and those origins, it's, it's very much about Britain, actually. It's called Beastly Fury, The Strange Birth of British Football. Uh, not, not, not just England, because Scotland is actually enormously important in the story. And what it actually is, is the story of the birth of the, the, the professional game in the Victorian era and the Edwardian era. I mean, obviously, football goes back further. You have the medieval folk game, which I look at and touch on. But it, it's fundamentally the story of, of um, Victorian and Edwardian football running up to the First World War. Talking folk football, your, your book begins with an amazing chapter on the survival of the folk football match at Derby, isn't it? Which gives, sort of gives it its title, doesn't it? Beastly Fury. It's abs- it seems to be absolute mayhem. Yes, it's mock battle, yes. It still is battle, isn't it? Uh, uh, very much so. It is a metaphor for war, isn't it? That's why it's so fascinating. And the World Cup is such an incredible event. <laughs> Yes, I mean, those Shrove Tuesday games, um, remember, you know, Shrove Tuesday in Catholic countries tends to be carnival. It's a whole tradition going back centuries of the world turned uh, upside down, Uh, the world turned on its head. Uh, And I think they they serve those festivals and and Shrove Tuesday football fits within that broad gamut um, of those festivals. They serve as a purpose for the release of sort of a safety valve for the release of social tensions. Um, I think the important point I make in the book is that when we think about medieval football, we always think of those great Shrove Tuesday games, which would play, you know, have hundreds on each side. Um, It would be one village against another or one area of a town against another. And they'd sort of roam over the fields. There were effectively no rules. You you, you could certainly use your hands and pretty pretty much anything else for that matter. Uh, And yeah, they were absolute anarchy. now, alongside that, you've always had with football, with folk football, smaller scale games, much more everyday games, which, you know, from a fairly early period seem to have set pitches and set numbers on each side. So there's a slightly false idea of medieval and early modern folk football, which derives from the Great Shrove Tuesday games, which were just one form of football. You you have this smaller, rather more civilised form of folk football, and it's actually that that feeds in to the, in the modern game in the 19th century. Now, it seems to me, Richard, you've taken on a persistent myth that, you know, it's public school amateurs who civilise football um, and codify it and... Uh, reduce the carnage of um, Shrove Tuesday football, but if anything, in your book, it seems to be the other way round. It's it's early public school football that's that's generally mayhem and carnage, and an outlet for basically an outlet for sadism and riot. Um, and it's um, if anything, it's the folk football, um, it's contact with folk football that civilizes the public school boys, isn't it? Rather than the other way round. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, that, that, that's why it's important to grasp that, that folk football, 90% of the time, was this smaller, more structured form of football. I mean, anything was more civilised than the Shrove Tuesday games, but they're, they're not what feed into modern football. And 
what happens is folk football, the Shrove Tuesday games, but also smaller folk football, virtually it comes very close to extinction uh, at the start of the 19th century. With, with, with the industrialization, a whole host of popular pastimes die in the early 19th century. And football is close to being one of them. And it's kept alive in, in the public schools. But you're right. I mean, the, public, the seven great public schools, Eton, Harrow, um, Winchester, Shrewsbury, and so on, and rugby, all... And this is, you know, we get into the difference with cricket here. All develop their own very distinctive forms of football. Rugby, of course, being the most distinctive and that you could run with the ball in your hands, which you couldn't do any, anything anywhere else. But, but all of them were absolutely psychotically violent. No, I mean, of all of the Harrow football seems to me the most extraordinary. And I just can't get my head around that. It seems to have, you say it has a ball shaped like a cassock, which is very, very That's hard right. to imagine. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you, you then hear um, of clubs later on playing a game based on the Harrow game, which you would, you would assume they must have switched to a, um, a, a ball, a round ball, at that point. But these games are all very strange, very idiosyncratic. I mean, they, they, these, you know, the, the world of public schools in the nineteenth century is an extraordinary and bizarre world, and they all quite consciously cultivate this very individual mystique. And it's almost a point of pride with all of them that they have these obscure, very distinctive rules um, for the form of football they take. And of course, this is the huge problem. Again, unlike cricket, when you get to the mid-19th century and people start saying, well, you know, we quite like to carry on playing this game as adults. What rules do they play? And and it's enormously difficult to get, and in fact, I think really proves pretty much impossible to get all of the public schools to sit down and agree uh, a, a code because, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's such an intense hierarchy amongst these schools. Eton and Harrow can't possibly accept a rule that, that comes from the Shrewsbury game, for example. So you have all these sort of things going on. So actually, my point is that, that the codification of the laws, which people generally talk about as having happened first at Cambridge and then with the 1863 um, formation of the FA, Actually, it, ha it doesn't happen then. It doesn't happen through the public schools. It happens rather later, and it happens through adult men, many of whom have not been to public school, coming together in London and in Sheffield um, and, and playing the game and gradually evolving a, co a common set of rules. Now, cricket, it seems to me, has virtually a head start of well over 100 years uh, on football in terms of codification, in terms of public following, in terms of being one game that almost anybody could understand, naturally. And cricket, uh, it seems to me, reaches the modern game of cricket in the 1860s. The last great innovation is legitimised, overarm bowling. From then on, almost every... The rules are tinkered with frequently, but from about 1860 onwards, almost any cricket match is recognisable as a modern cricket match today, or modern first-class match today. Um, football, that's not the case, is it? In football, um, early football matches, even internationals, are really quite, in many ways, startlingly different from today, aren't they? Well, actually, I mean, really, in one sense, given that that final rule change doesn't come into cricket until the 1860s, they're not so out of whack. I mean, the thing about cricket is, for a century before that, other than that particular aspect you've had a pretty uniform set of rules whereas prior to the 1860s you have this extraordinary variety of football but what actually happens is quite suddenly and quite quickly in the mid late 1860s in London and in Sheffield suddenly a set of rules coalesce the 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 famous 1863 set of rules or an attempt to reach a compromise with rugby. You read them, and they don't. You know, they don't bear relation to the modern game of football at all. Um, and in fact, were hardly ever used. I mean, there's great stress laid on that 1863 rule book, but it's it's actually largely irrelevant. Those those rules were almost never used. And the FA, in fact, was in danger of dying in in, in the mid 1860s. It was going nowhere. And then, as I say, you get this sort of organic process. You get teams like the Crusaders. There's a team called Dingley Dell. There's a team called Civil Service. There's a team called War Office um, arising in the capital. Football also takes off in Sheffield, and simply through the process of constantly playing together, they evolve a set of rules, a set of rules which is quite close to what's being played at at um, Charterhouse 
and at Westminster Public Schools in London. So actually, by the time you get that, that first international in 1872, and the first FA Cup final in 1872, it's not so different. Uh, by that point, you've, you've, they, they've progressed. There are certain things that are different. You, you uh, throw-ins have to be taken uh, hot, you know, sort of vertically in the, in the way they are in rugby. Uh, there's still a tape for the crossbar. Um, you, you have two umpires at either end of the pitch, and the ref is only brought in if they, they don't, don't agree. But, but really, in its essentials, and, and, you know, and the game is, is, is far tougher uh, and and you know all sorts of things are are acceptable, which would later on not be acceptable. You can barge into people, you can charge the goalie into the goal, even when he's not holding the ball. You know, um, but in its essentials, you, the modern game is certainly the modern rules are in place in their essentials by eighteen seventy two, and by the mid eighteen eighties, people are playing football in. Very broadly, the same way they do now. The way I'm starting to to see this, Richard and I are, are writing a book about the history of cricket, uh, and if you look at the evolution of cricket rules and cricket, it clearly does have some kind of existence in the Middle Ages. You know, you start to get reference to it in in, in manuscripts, and um, you know, and first of all, in France, we think, but it's it's played in all sorts of different ways but it's really a ball and a bat at that point and and it's it's and the ball is rolled along the ground it's much more like bowling the bowling is called bowling because that's what it was and it, it, it and that form and it also evolved in what is you see in village greens um or times and you know bowl, bowls it is uh in a, it, one evolution from cricket so it's, it feels a little bit like some sort of darwinian evolution uh, all sorts of neanderthal man and then he's wiped out and then uh, uh, and so on and and um and football kicks off uh you know probably much you get a sense that's much more football in the middle ages than there was cricket but it had so many different um kind of manifestations and different sets of rules and, and regionally and so on well and cricket hardly existed but it did and cricket codifies itself uh, much sooner and becomes a national sport much sooner. But the evolution is very fascinating to compare the evolutions. Does that make sense to you, Richard? Yes, I think that's right. I think football was, folk football was much more widely played as far as I can see in the sort of late medieval um, Elizabeth and, uh, 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 and Stuart eras. And I think, you know, because it's a folk game, it's, it's, you know, you have massive, even before the public schools come in and put their imprint, you have massive regional variation. I, I'm interested though, why do you think that cricket doesn't have these regional variations? Why do you think the, the, the common code, other than the overarm um, rule, evolves so much earlier in cricket? Because in a way, in a way, football is what you would expect—a game that's completely regional. There's no reason why people in Northumbria should be playing football in the same way as people in Kent in the pre-modern era. Betting to answer that, to answer that question straight away. I mean, the early the laws of cricket are formulated, and the um, the, the idea of a set of laws of cricket was formulated in the 18th century primarily to settle wages by by rich aristocrats, isn't it? Which is an element I don't detect. In your book about football, I don't. In fact, I don't hardly see any reference. I can't remember any references to gambling or football at all. So that that motive for codifying football doesn't for codifying a game doesn't exist in football as it did in cricket a hundred years before, and perhaps ties into the fact that prior to the nineteenth century. Um, the upper classes aren't playing football. I mean, it may be that, that working class people were, were gambling on it, but they, you know, that, that might have worked, worked through in different ways. But you don't, until the 19th century, you don't have that element of aristocratic or upper class patronage in football, and that might be the missing element. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to that. The, the aristocrats are playing their versions of football in public school, particularly, particularly when they become seniors and can. But not, not really until the nineteenth century. Is it right? Mm, right. So even there's a sort of it seems to me then there's a last flourish of <laughs> sadism and violence and and riot um, in the early nineteenth century, and then football, like other sports, gets civilized and controlled in public schools to a degree. 
Richard, it does happen earlier with cricket, doesn't it? You know, math, um, Dr. Arnold, in, in Tom Brown's school days, cricket has, which is, I think, set in the 1830s, 1840s, 1840s. I think it's the 1840s, yeah. And there's yeah. the famous description of a game of rugby in it, isn't it, which people pour over. Yeah, and it's actually an incredibly good book. I mean, it's a real page turner. Uh, and cricket is 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 getting organised. Uh, and this is the prototype public school of the new new news type, isn't it? Under the yeah. great Dr. Arnold. And it a bit early. It happens a bit earlier. There's some headmasters who are, some headmasters who real sport. Um, sorry, Richard, we ought to bring you back in. Sport <laughs> in in public schools before um, for years is organised by the boys themselves, isn't it? And it's basically an excuse to. For most of them, it's an excuse to to riot, to go out drinking, to go out betting, um, and uh, it's thoroughly indisciplined. And the headmasters suddenly realise that if they um, if if they bring sport into the body of school discipline, they'll still let it be run largely by the boys. But if they integrate it into school life, uh, they get much more control over what their boys are doing. But it's all tied in with the, the takeoff of muscular Christianity. Sport in, in the early 19th century is seen as, you know, part of a general manifestation of, you know, chaos and, and, and you know, recklessness. And that's both in the public schools and in um, and, and the folk game. I mean, I think the headmaster of Shrewsbury used to trot around the school grounds on a donkey, suppressing any games of football he found breaking out, you know. But the, then you get this remarkable change in the in the mid nineteenth century, this takeoff of yes, tied in with muscular Christianity, the the idea that it's character forming and so on, and, until by the time you get to the later Victorian period, um, school sports in the in the public schools are, are you know are almost almost a religion. I mean, they, they they acquire enormous importance. They do, and they also they're used to and the sport first time. Doesn't it? In the mid nineteenth century becomes used to sell public schools, doesn't it? It becomes almost used to market them to the new that, middle classes. That's right. As the as the as the as the, the Victorian era progresses, but yes, I mean Arnold at rugby is enormously important um, in in this evolution. I mean, you go back to Tom Brown's school days. They have a wonderful description of cricket in Tom Brown's school days as well, don't they? He well, he 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 refers to cricket as something almost mystical, almost religious, or something. I can't remember the terminology, but he 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 certainly you know sees cricket as as important as football. There's an extraordinary conversation I think you're thinking of, Richard. With, uh, unlike any conversation I can imagine between any set of schoolboys almost anywhere, but um, Tom Brown and what's his name, Arthur. Um, Arthur, I've got his second name. The, the religious yeah. boy. The religious boy, the goody goody. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's it's cricket's an Englishman's birthright, like habeas corpus. I think that's they say. It. That's point. it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's a personal request. When I went to one of these um, public schools, I don't think it was one of the top seven, but it wasn't that far off. It was called Sherburn. Basically, the, any thought of playing football, and this was in the 70s, was regarded with total horror by the masters. It was, it was cricket in the summer, it was fine. Rugby, which was the sort of the religion of the school. And then we had to play hockey in the Lent term. And if you so much as mentioned football, the, the teachers would go white with horror. What explains that, Richard? Well, I, it's because um, football... You, I mean, we enter another topic here, which is the huge class divisions. I mean, I, you know, when I wrote about football, it's very hard to write about anything in the Victorian era without really writing about class. And I think it's, um, you know, although we live in a, a very, very divided society today, it's it's more American. It's cruder. It's about money. The class in the in the Victorian is, is so rigid. It's 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 almost a caste system, really. And when working class organized sport takes off it presents all sorts of challenges uh, you know you have to confront all sorts of social taboos i mean you're going to play against if you're upper class are you going to play against working class teams you're going to play alongside working class guys you know it's it, it's um it, it's it's very tricky and and you know we can go on to this cricket football and rugby are all resolve these issues in very different ways but essentially football comes to be regarded as the great working class sport that's what it is um you, by the time of the first world war you have this great division where rugby 
other than in certain areas, of course, and you've got rugby league as well. So there are pockets of working class rugby and so on. Um, but rugby, upper and middle class men have, have decided to play rugby in large part because they don't want to play football. Um, and football, and also, of course, football was slightly tainted in the First World War. The, the season continues through the first year of the First mm. World War, which was thought of as terribly um, unpatriotic. And, and turned um, you know many upper class people against it. So by the time you get to the twenties, football is regarded as a very working class sport, and and therefore um, people of higher social classes don't play it. I mean, as I understand it, there is this interesting thing that the very posh schools, and, and we, you know, when we're talking about the, the, the original great, you, you get a great expansion of the number of public schools in the 19th century. Um, the, 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 lots of new ones are created, or, or, you know, like Dulwich College around the corner from me, existing grammar schools are, are re, recreated or reformulated as, as, as public schools. Um, but the original great seven, we're talking here, Eton, Harrow, Winchester, Shrewsbury, Rugby, Westminster and Charterhouse. Okay. Now, my understanding is that even well in, even into modern times, the sign of a very posh school was that they did actually play football. Yes, that's true. All of them have played in the lower reaches of old boys' football against all against against all of them, and um, they, um, yeah, they did. Though Eton, because certainly has clung to its own versions of football as well. Yes, I, whether they, you know, I, I had a very pleasant lunch at Eton while I was writing the book, and they, 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 you know, they talked to me about the field game and the wall game, which do continue. I, th- I think the health and safety people have got their hands on them, so I'm, I don't think they're quite, quite what they were. Um, I, but I think they played conventional football alongside. I can't remember to be honest. They certainly played conventional football. Yeah, because my agent, when I was writing that book, was an old Etonian, and he he played for the old Etonians, and, and they played conventional football. Rising from that, Richard, one of the big themes I pick up in your book is that association football very quickly escapes control by former public school amateurs far more successfully or far more determinedly than cricket do in rugby union. And I almost get a sense in your book that the amateurs are willing to give up control of association football, so long as they can, and, and indeed rugby league when it arises, so long as they can keep control of of cricket and and rugby union. Yes, I mean it's interesting with football because you um the people who run football very early on are uh, men from Harrow and Eton, Kinnaird and Alcock and so on. They're faced with the great rise of professionalism in the eighteen eighties. You know, this presents an enormous Problem. It's slightly hard to get our heads around these days why they were so averse to professionalism. You know, what's wrong with a, with a man earning, uh, being paid for playing football? But it clearly triggered all sorts of things. And I think in the end, it was about control. I mean, once you've got professional sportsmen, for a start, you lose to them. They're better than you when they keep beating yeah. you. Uh, but mm. also, they're inevitably going to want to control the sport. What happens with cricket, it all, with football, it all comes to a head in 1885. You have this enormous struggle within the FA, and eventually the professionals win. Professionalism is legalised. Now, you have exactly the same thing happens 10 years later with Rugby League, and there they are not able to reach a compromise, and the sport splits between rugby union and rugby league and the great division there of course is 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 professionalism although the rules change as as well i i think one thing argument that's put forward and this seems to me very convincing is that football is run by men who are very socially self-confident you know they 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 they're from the upper upper classes and they sort of have the confidence to compromise whereas rugby is run by people from you know rug, rugby school very much has an inferiority complex vis-a-vis Eton and Harrow and so on. They're a bit chippier. They're they, they're a bit um, they're a bit less secure. The the crunch also comes ten years later, by which time you've got the rise of trade unions. It's a slightly more fraught period in in social terms. And the people who run rugby don't seem to feel able to compromise, which is why you get the split. But it's one of it's it's, it's absolutely vital to football that in the mid eighteen eighties you have administrators like Charlie Alcock who have the wisdom to compromise. The way I put it in the book is football manages to absorb the enormous unleashed energy 
of a working class that for the first time has leisure time, for the first time can engage in organized sport. It absorbs that enormous unleashed energy without rupturing. And the reason it does that is the sort of wisdom of people who are running um, the sport at that time. But it makes it, it makes it unique. And so it passes into the control. It actually passes into the control, not of the professional footballers, but of the, 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 the middle-class club owners, the sort of industrialists and brewers particularly, um, who, who own the football clubs. They are the people power really passes to. You, you get a you know, sort of Marxist term, it's fairly straightforward, three-part division within football. You have the upper-class amateurs, the, the middle-class club owners, and the working-class footballers. And the whole history of football in the 30, 40 years before the First World War is those three groups jockeying for, for position. And it's the middle group, the sort of industrialists and brewers and so on, who own the football clubs, who emerge triumphant. And the poor old professional footballers are, are crushed. You get the imposition of the, the maximum wage and the retain and transfer system, which are extraordinary things, you know, in a world of laissez-faire economics. And, you know, and, and they, they persist for decades. Poor old Stanley Matthews and Tom Finney are trotting out in the late 40s in front of, you know, 80, 90, 100,000 people and earning 12 quid a week. You know, it's extraordinary. I can, I'm just old enough to remember retain and transfer. Um, retain, and I remember George Easton um, challenging it eventually successfully in the courts. And that was in the 1960s, as late as that. So... We should just explain for the, for our younger listeners what was retain and transfer because it's such an extraordinary um, thing by modern standards, wasn't You're it? You're perhaps more across this to me. I mean, my memory is that it really persists until the Bosman ruling, but there may there may be stages in this. I'm not I'm not quite sure. But essentially, once you had signed forms with the club, the club owned you. You were the club's chattel. Now the club, of course, was obliged to um, pay you a salary. But you know, if you wanted to move someone else, it was tough. You 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 couldn't. Uh, now you know. Nowadays, of course, you sign a contract, and once your contract has expired, you're a, you're a free agent. Um, but in a way, even more. And and it was a system imposed by the smaller clubs, who knew that if there was complete freedom of movement, the the bigger clubs would just hoover up all their players. But even more extraordinary was the maximum wage. And it's very interesting to probe this. It's, it's established in 1901, and at that point it's £4 in the season. I think it's slightly less in the summer. Um, why? I mean, why did... You know, they, the, the clubs were drawing large crowds. They were making money. They could afford to pay the players more. In fact, for decades thereafter, clubs found all sorts of under-the-table ways of pay, paying players so they could keep... Um, the big players, and there were always periodic scandals about this. But it's a very simple and basic question: why, why, uh, why, why shouldn't players earn the money that uh, their skills merited, and which in the market they would have been paid? And you can't help but feel there is a sort of deep suspicion, and this is, comes back to the the hostility to professionalism as well. There is an instinctive, sort of vestigial, deep suspicion and fear of young working-class men getting above themselves and, and essentially earning middle-class salaries. They, they, they seem to just instinctively feel it's wrong and it shouldn't happen. Well, the same thing, the same thing happens, does it not, in cricket, uh, which is very feudal indeed until the, really till the 1970s. You can't move from one... You have to take a year off if you're going to move from one club uh, to another. Uh, and you get amateur captains remaining um, into the 70s, really, don't you? Tom Graveney left, famously left Gloucestershire in 1961 because a sort of a very talent, uh, untalented gentleman amateur was given the captaincy, not him. And he had to take a season off in order to move to Worcestershire, where he played out the remainder of his his career. Uh, I, Richard, is there, was there a wage limit for players? Well, in, uh, there's no formal wage limit. The big control that um, counties had over their players was um, um, was the award of a benefit. Um, if you went out of line, you didn't get a benefit. Benefits, um, thanks to some smart manoeuvring, um, benefits were tax-free. So it was, they were even they were especially valuable to players. And if you didn't get one, you uh, as a cricketer, you faced you might face penury in in old age. The same applies in football. You have benefits, testimonials. I mean, they don't do it yeah. now. But, you know, when I was a kid, you, you'd still go and see so-and-so's testimonial um, mm. to raise money for their retirement. Can I go back 
to that, um, your very interesting discussion of, of, of the course football took with the victory, it really became a national support by repudiating amateurism in the late 19th century. And of course, a similar battle was going on in cricket at the same time between the amateurs and the professionals. And I think it's right to say it was won out by the amateurs. Richard is better than me, but it's, I just like, want to develop that analogy. I think um, Peter's thinking of the fact that Charles Alcock, who's absolutely a pivotal figure in both sports, isn't he? Charles Alcock accommodates professionalism in football, though in, in quite a controlled way. In a, in a controlled way, he doesn't let the professionals get above their hands, but he actually breaks um, the Surrey professional strike very, very effectively, doesn't he? In the eighteen nineties, in cricket, as secretary of, as secretary of Surrey. I mean, as I understand it in cricket, you essentially get a two-tier system evolved. So within each club, you have both professionals. Within each county, um, you, 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 you have professionals and amateurs. And there is a very clear and rigid division between them. You know, they, they eat separately. They, they even enter the pitch by separate entrances sometimes, yeah. I think. And, you know, the absurd things like, I think, um, is it the the professionals have their initials after their name, the amateurs have their initials, or is it the other way around? Other way, like, other way about. The, the, the amateurs have Mr. Have Mr. and initials before, and the um, the professionals have either no initials at all or initials afterwards. Yeah, and it's extraordinary how long this position... I mean, am I right in thinking Len Hutton is the first professional captain of England? Yes. Yeah, that was 1952. They just ran out of amateurs who were <laughs> remotely good enough to captain England, to play for England. And yeah, whereas that, that happens in football in the 1890s. You, you, there's a, they, in the 1880s, it's still the case that the, 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 the Corinthians if, effectively provide the national team in the late 1880s. But it evolves very, very quickly. And the, the, um, the amateurs are terribly upset by this, and there's all sorts of tensions. Again, you know, they tend to travel separately, have separate dressing rooms, uh, and what have you. But, but and the, the tradition persists that an amateur, which generally meant a Corinthian, um, should captain the team. But I th by the beginning of the twentieth century, that that's stopped, and um, the professionals are fully in charge. A big theme that comes out in your book is that. Different English sports handle the class system in, a, in very different ways, as between amateurs and professionals, and as between the sort of, you know, the chaps who um, get selected and do the selecting. And um, just wondered if you'd like to enlarge on that a little bit more, because it seems to be absolutely pivotal in the way that English sports develop. I think essentially rugby and cricket uh, managed to maintain the 19th century world into the 20th century. Rugby splits. Um, between a professional and an amateur sport, and 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 cricket imposes a class distinction within the county teams between the the, the amateurs and the gentlemen, which you'll know more about. But it has always seemed absolutely extraordinary uh, to me, and absolutely galling for the professionals as as well. I mean, you know, I think there's one professional in the at the time of the strike at the Surrey at Surrey in the 1890s says, you know, if I'd earned as much in expenses as most amateurs by now, I'd be able to retire. It was nothing to do with money. It wasn't about money. W.G. Grace charged a fortune in expenses. The Corinthians yes. were always absolutely ruthless in, in extracting expenses. It wasn't really about money. It was some, about something else. Um, and, and, and football's great achievement is that it, it overcomes this football in, in a way. You know, if you take the, the First World War as being the event that really finally breaks the power of the landed aristocracy in so many ways. They never really retain their grip or their self-confidence uh, after, the, after the First World War. Football, in a way, is ahead of the curve. That process, as it were, has happened in the 1880s with the, the, the victory of professionalism in 1885. That's so interesting. And you could say that it's a great lost opportunity for cricket. Uh, you know, if you look at today's situation, Football is the national game, the dominant game. Cricket is is popular, but it's 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 getting ever narrower in its social base, and it it hasn't got the national resonance. And you can date that, that back to this key moment when cricket chose amateurism, and, and football made it made its peace with professionalism. 
Although, uh, you know, f- f- cricket accommodates professionalism because you have professionals within the counties. I mean, I, I, it's very interesting this as well because I have a whole chapter on the struggle between football and rugby. Why does one become more popular than the other? I mean, in my own personal view, is football's just a better game um, than, than, than rugby. I mean, cricket is slightly tricky as a, you know, for a start, they, they're not in direct competition. One's summer, one's winter. Um, I mean, it's quite, you know, cricket was a mass spectator sport in the 1860s. You know, 20,000 would turn Mm. out to watch um, Harrow of Eton at Lord's and so on, which is quite surprising because... You know, the television transforms the the coverage of cricket. It's it's a slightly odd game to watch as a spectator in the old days when you're when you're so far um, from the action. But 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 why football acquires this domination and then spreads around the world? You know, what are the great qualities of football? I I personally just think it's a very good game. Um, but there's also the point that you you can play it on concrete, which is terribly important. You can play cricket on concrete, of course, as well. I, I, you know, I played cricket in a comprehensive school playground, and we 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 played on concrete with the the, the stumps drawn on the wall. You know, um, rugby, you can't play on concrete. You can't tackle. You can't do rugby tackles on concrete. You can play touch rugby or, or on concrete, but you you, you can't. Um, and and also, I think you know the the hugely important thing for f- football is when you start getting state. Um, schools, the takeoff of state elementary schools um, in the latter decades of the 19th century. They, they, football is the sport of choice. They, they, you know, they're, they're very influenced by muscular Christianity and the need to have the boys out there running around and burning off their surplus energy and what have you. And football is the game they choose over rugby, in part as well, because... Um, the boys are just much less likely to get hurt. You know, there mm-hmm. was, a, was a sense of... You, the death toll in late 19th century rugby is extraordinary. People are always dying on the, on the pitch <laughs> in late 19th century rugby. Um, and, and, and football has that great advantage as well. I was intrigued to see in that section, uh, Richard, that, um, that mothers had a lot to do with it. Because there's been a big rise in, as you know, in in soccer moms in the in the United States. They're a um, a big demographic, and soccer moms had a big influence in the growth of soccer um, in the United States as an alternative to American football, which is even more um, violent and injury prone than um, than uh, rugby in in England. I think there's a letter to the Times in 1882 bemoaning the fact. That all all these um, do-gooders were interfering, oh. to try and take the manliness out of rugby, and they said it principally de- derives from coroners and and distressed mothers or something like mm. that. I'm no, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not surprised mothers were. You know, I mean, you know, with a child dying on a sports pitch, um, it, it was appallingly violent rugby. And it's interesting that you know, going back to things we were talking about earlier, that the the sport, which is the one that's adopted by the upper classes. And the um, the new public schools is the far more violent of the two codes. You know, it's it's the working class game of football that is actually um, more rational and more restrained and more designed to avoid injury. It's a terribly important thing. Once you're a professional footballer, you can't go getting injured every week. <laughs> so, which is very important in the evolution of football. And and you know, we haven't talked about the tactics and so on. And the, the rules of football change in the 1860s, but really it's only in the late 70s and 1880s that tactics change. And and the key thing is passing. You get this to Mm. a degree in rugby as well. But in the the public school games, you didn't pass to each other. In fact, it was against... They they had terribly strict offside rules. And it was regarded as funking to pass Mm. the ball. It was positively unmanly. And um, although the, the, the offside rule changed, if a player did stay up pitch beyond the goal, close to the opponent's goal, this was regarded as sneaking, it mm. was called. Um, so the old public school games were in, in, in basically you know, mock combat. You had to charge in a sort of mass through your opponents. Whereas the minute you have the introduction of the the modern offside rule as opposed to the old offside rules which really really prevented any forward passing at all the minute you you you, you change that offside rule you transform football because suddenly you know you can you can pass the ball around you can get the ball to, to do the work it suddenly becomes a completely different game 
I think we should pay tribute to the Scots, as you do in your book. It's the Scots, aren't they? And to, to a degree also the Northern Professional Clubs. But it's the Scots who invent the passing game, isn't it? Yes, I mean, Queen's Park. To a lesser extent, the Sheffield Club and also the Royal Engineers, who are a bit different from the other upper-class teams. But, but it's the Scots above all. Um, I mean, Queen's Park are the prototype of the sort of... Um, you know, very perfectly respectable middle-class gents from Glasgow, um, but who haven't been to public school, and therefore, when they they come to football fresh, and they, they you know they 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 start playing football once the offside rule has been reformed, and they they play it in logical ways, and really they essentially provide uh, the the Scotland team. Uh, the Scotland team is the Queen's Park team for many years, um, and they keep winning. They keep beating the English. Um, you know they're, they're they're better than them. In fact, Scotland, England doesn't catch up with Scotland in terms of games won between the two teams until 1980. Um, so you have this takeoff of um, of these new clubs which pioneer the passing game, and the old public school teams, Wanderers and the old boys teams, never really adapt to it. They don't really like it. Can I develop that? points about Scotland, which of course is an international match. I mean, your book's very interesting about um, the evolution of international football. You know, it starts in 1872, and the, the first non-home international is not till 1908. And then, the, uh, then England and, and Scotland presumably go off to Austria, Hungary, places like that. Whereas uh, cricket's very different. They, the, the tour, they start touring abroad much before in the 18, 1860s and of course the tours tend to be not a, across Europe but they're going the the teams are going across the empire they're going to South Africa they're going to Australia they're going to uh, in due course to India and uh, what is now Pakistan what explains different sort of course in international football that's right that's right it's very interesting that football doesn't spread through the empire football spreads to continental europe and then to south america and and it's those places that the early teams um tour the corinthians go off on tours to the to latin america in the years before they're on the, the boat to brazil at the moment the first world war is declared uh, and the internationals you're right they're played against uh, european teams um of course england put out England have this strange compromise where they they play an amateur team in internationals um, up until the First World War against any non-British team. They 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 pick their best team with the professionals against Scotland, Wales, or Ireland, but they put out amateurs against the foreigners. They still usually beat the foreigners on the early results. They they get a clean sweep on the first on the tour of Austria Hungary. Uh, yeah, in 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 nineteen oh eight, I don't think they even conceded a goal actually in that uh, in that clean sweep. Richard, while you're on Austria Hungary, I want you to tell um, our, our listeners because I I like to hear it. I've heard it from you many times. The story of Archduke Otto. Well, Archduke Otto, the last heir of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, heir to the last to Emperor Karl, um, becomes an MEP uh, as a has a long life, becomes a member of the European Parliament, he's still um, Crown Imperial Prince Otto, and uh, Dr. Otto van Habsburg. And late in his life, Austria are playing Hungary in a, um, uh, I think it was in a World Cup match, and um, some fellow MEP asked Dr. van Habsburg, um, do you know the score on the Austria-Hungary game? And he says, no, whom are we playing? That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I really like the cut of uh, Archduke Otto's gift, don't you? I think he's, uh, it's, a, it's a very good joke, that. Yeah. Well, yes, I think he meant it seriously. Um, it's always <laughs> told us if he meant it seriously, he still thought the, um, they were playing as one. Um, I'd like to ask about um, Arthur Wharton, Richard, who we mentioned in there, the first um, black professional footballer. And I was really quite shocked to see the racism he encountered as goalkeeper for Preston, uh, not just the, you know, the uh, in the media, but I was depressed most of all in reading about the way he felt obliged to act up as a stereotype, um, as, a, as a black person who was expected. He, he thought he had to clown around as a goalkeeper and eventually seemed to blight his political career. 
Yes, I was struck by that. I was I was rereading that. I was struck by how sad it is. He he does odd things like he'll squat by the side of the goal and only spring into action when the the ball comes up that end of the pitch, or he'd even sit on the crossbar. And um, you do get a strong sense that he is seeking to ingratiate himself with the crowds. And it does ultimately count against him because when he starts making errors, he's dropped from the Preston team and doesn't play again. Were there any other black... Have you ever... Were there any other black contemporaries of him? I don't think so. There's a a black player who plays for Spurs by the time we get to the First World War uh, in the years immediately prior to the First World War. He's often talked about. Um, I, I, you know, I think you have one or two in the in the early years, but it, obviously it's not really until the nineteen sixties and seventies in, in 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 Britain that you get large numbers of black players playing. Yeah. First one, some of the earliest ones are exiles from South Africa, aren't they? They're they're, um, they're exiles from apartheid. I hadn't realised that. Yeah, Albert Johansson of Leeds um, oh, won a cup final. Realised that? Yes, South Africa won a cup final medal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wrote about him in my biography of Basil Dolivera. He was an absolutely magical winger who got hacked. He, he just went, he took Leeds to Division One, uh, you know, up to what is now the Premiership, and he was so good. And then he got hacked to death, basically. Um, Don Revy, uh, who uh, he had a different, I, I don't know, we, I'll tell the story. He said to Don Revy that calling me um, a black so-and-so. Um, Don Revy said, well, call them a white so-and-so. That was the reaction he got back. Um, uh, but he, his, his story is, is very, very moving. Can I just move on the uh, conversation? Um, Billy Meredith, I, I, this, the greatest player of the 19th footballer is Billy Meredith. Maybe talk about him. And also, I'm very interested in the comparisons of W.G. Grace, who becomes a sort of super, superstar status, the greatest sportsman of the age. Well, Billy Meredith was a, a, a Welsh miner um, from North Wales, in fact. And he, he's really the first um, player who, who he's, he's really the first professional footballer who becomes a big star. Um, until Meredith, there isn't any great mystique or, or, or appeal amongst um, professional footballers. Um, and, and, and Meredith, he didn't want to be a professional footballer. He, he felt he'd be much better off, um, you know, retaining his job as an engineer um, in the mines. And he thought that would be a much better a career move in the long term. But by the mid-1890s, Manchester City, who he was playing for, weren't prepared to tolerate that. And he was forced to turn professional. And he always had a completely sort of, you know, practical and, and, and ruthless, well, not ruthless, but a very practical attitude to, to earning a living. And he is terribly important because he is one of the great driving forces behind the formation of the Players' Union in 1907-1908, which is ultimately crushed by the FA and by the professional clubs, quite quite brutally and, and, and ruthlessly crushed. And he's terribly distressed by this. He says the, the, the players have none of the pluck of the miners. You know, he'd brought a, a sort of Welsh miner consciousness to, to the struggle. And, and really his career in, embodies, he, he, you know, as late as 1960, the football journalist Percy Young um, was describing him as the greatest footballer who'd ever lived, which was, probably wasn't true. But... Um, and really, his career does epitomise this this crushing of professional footballers. By the by, the start of the twentieth century, he was earning about seven pounds a week, which really you know lifted him out of the working class. Um, very few skilled workers could expect to earn more than three pounds a week at the most at that time. Um, and then suddenly, in nineteen oh one, you get the introduction of the the maximum wage, four pounds a week. Um, and all, you know, obviously they managed to find ways of paying him un- him under the table a bit. But he he was enormously resentful of the way he'd re- been treated, and was was very conscious of the the deep class divisions that existed within football, and which persist. I mean, you have this, ex- you know, decades later, you, you, Stanley Matthews is on his way up to. Um, Scotland to play an international. He, st- he has to change trains at Carlisle, buys himself a, a scone and a cup of tea, and gets carpeted by the FA when he when he tries to expense for this. He has to traipse all the way to London. He's he's has to stand before the FA committee. They bark at him and call, you know refer to him as Matthews. 
you know, I mean, it's, it's absolutely astonishing that this sort of stuff was persisting you know, into the post-Second World War era. It's very interesting to compare uh, Meredith with W.G. Grace, who becomes very rich uh, and accepted, uh, even though he, he's from a, you know, he's a doctor's son from Gloucestershire, isn't he, I think? Uh, and he could easily have gone professional, but Meredith is fighting a collective battle with and on behalf of his fellow professionals, whereas Grace effectively betrayed his fellow cr cricketers and made it about himself, became incredibly rich and famous uh, as a result and died in high repute and in great prosperity. Unlike Meredith, who died very poor. Yeah, there's that very moving story. Meredith dies in 1958, a few weeks after the, the Munich air crash. And uh, the, the, I think the secretary or the chair or whatever of the Professional Footballers Association at that time visits him shortly before he dies. And he's sort of ill and destitute and living in poverty. And he, he's in bed and he sort of leans under his bed and he pulls out this this suitcase. And in it, he's got all his FA Cup winners medals and all his Welsh caps and so on. He says, you tell your members these, these things didn't do me any, any good at all in old age. <laughs> and of course, it was exactly. just three years after that that you finally get the maximum wage abolished. Yep. Johnny Haynes, the first 100, comes a 100-pound footballer. It's a huge threshold and then from that point onwards um well footballers wages uh, footballers earnings completely overtake crickets don't they um, yes i mean they go up very fast johnny haynes goes from 20 pounds a week to 100 pounds a week overnight um if you read hunter davis's wonderful book about spurs the glory game 1972 i think players at that time were earning 200 pounds a week which mm. was a lot in 1972 um but it's it's really only with the premier league era uh, that the, yep. the wages absolutely take off mm. um i'd like to talk briefly about ladies football which is a very um interesting significant chapter in your book um it I'm intrigued by the the hostility to ladies' football, which doesn't really come through against ladies' cricket in the same way in the 19th century, it seems to me. Women cricketers are very much patronised in, um, in the 19th century, and they're very much dependent uh, on men to be allowed to play at all and um, given the opportunity to play at all. Um, but they don't meet the same seems to be outright hostility and contempt that the um the the women footballers um that you describe uh, as you describe in your book and i wonder if that's to do with the times is that to do with the fact that the women footballers are very much identified with the the, the suffragettes with um with militant women with um you know with assert with assertive women uh, uh in a way which cricketers are not it may be, because uh, the people who tried to organise women's football early on certainly were political radicals as well and did see uh, football in political terms. It may also be because cricket football is, is more of a contact sport than than cricket and, and also because it was a more working-class sport. Um, you know, the, all of these things may, may have influenced the way people saw it. Um, and with women's football, what I write about in the book is, is very early women's football. In the First World War, you have the takeoff of women's teams, the Dick Kerr ladies and so on from Preston, which is mainly women working in the munitions factories. And there's a huge takeoff of women's football at that time. Um, well, what I write about is actually earlier forms of football. It, it's, a, it's, the, um, it's a team which is formed in London in the, in the mid-1890s by, on the, on the whole, sort of middle-class um, women and there, there is there are actually faint traces of an even earlier team in 1881 in Glasgow again it would seem to be sort of middle class women coming together but you're right it's crushed I mean they <laughs> they really don't like it and you, you've got a and also there's a game they play uh, I think in Crouch End where they, they it draws a huge crowd uh, about 10,000 and you certainly sense the crowd has turned up uh, in large part to mock and ridicule and see this as some sort of bizarre spectacle. You feel very sorry for these poor women who obviously aren't very good. Um, and and they're, they're faced with this enormous mass of mocking, hostile um, maleness. Um, and 
And there are actually riots in Glasgow. I mean, I think they have bricks thrown at them and so on. It's quite extraordinary, the hostility. And, and they, they fold in the end. They, they just give up. And they give up. And you, you then get the revival of women's football in the First World War. But then there's, you know, this appalling thing. After the First World War, there's this general shepherding of women back into the home and closing down of the opportunities that have opened up. And, and that football is very much part of that. And I think it's 1921 you you get uh, this uh, rule passed by the FA that uh, FA members are not allowed to have women using their premises. So they're suddenly closed off to all sorts of pitches and grounds around the country. And, you know, it's an absolute death blow to women's football. And that rule is not overturned by the FA until 1971. And even then, only under pressure from FIFA, which is quite astonishing. Mm. Absolutely. It was... Women cricketers are patronised, but at least they're allowed to use men's grounds with the, you know, with the assent of men. And MCC is really quite paternalistic towards sport. Um, it's not very helpful, but at least it's, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively paternalistic towards women's cricket. Though they have to assert themselves to get a match at Lords that doesn't arrive until 1975. One final question, Richard. Something very interesting happens to cricket is, and our, our friend Duncan Stone, I'm not sure, he doesn't approve of us very much, who, who sees cricket in, in, in almost Marxist terms, and he thinks the great disaster for cricket was it became a three-day game, uh, which could only appeal to um, leisured people, i.e. the middle classes, uh, and it renounced the one-day game, um, the league cricket, which has almost been written out, as he correctly observes, of cricket history until quite recently. Whereas football, of course, is a Saturday afternoon game primarily and therefore can uh, and become a working class sport for people who work during the week. Yes, I mean, it's always, I mean, I love cricket. I played cricket as a teenager um, a lot. Um, it's always struck me there is a basic problem with cricket, certainly in this country, that at the international level, it takes five days to play, you have to stop if it's raining and it's frequently a draw. <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in, in the sort of terms of, of, of modern sports, um, it's always going to struggle a bit. And it, you, yes, you do have this extraordinary thing of the county championship, which, you know, for decades and decades, no one really watched. I mean, the, the, the sort of bread and butter, the core of the game was were these games which were played in front of, you know, a couple of vicars and a dog. Um, it's an extraordinary thing. And yes, you're right. I mean, if you, 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 you go right back, Actually, you, you tell me, those very early test matches that Alcock is organising at the Oval in the 1870s, are they five-day games or what? Yes, they are four or five days. Five, five days is later. I think, it, I think they're, they're at least three and usually four, as I remember. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So that, mm. at international level, that comes in very early. But certainly yeah. village cricket um, would have been one-day games, wouldn't they? Yes. Of course. But it's... That wasn't the commercial. The other thing which happened endlessly in particular in the 19th centuries is you'd get teams of you know the, a select teams touring the country uh, and, and 11 cricketers would play the 22 of Berkshire or sure or something uh, did that happen in, in football sort of all-star 11s yeah they tour the country on a commercial entrepreneurial basis and take on 22 locals or 30 locals I don't know. No, the only team in a way that does that are the, are the Corinthians, um, who are established in 1882 as a means of bringing together all the best amateurs. Basically, they, they recognise the amateurs are under siege from the professionals. And what they do is they create this team, which in a way is the, it, it inherits the mantle of the earlier Wanderers. And um, all the best amateurs play for it. And one of the reasons Wanderers had died out was because it was taken as given that the uh, a man's old school had first call on his services. So, you know, you, you, if old Etonians or old Horovians wanted you to play, you played for them and not for Wanderers. So what Corinthians did was they, they, they only played midweek. They didn't interfere with the, the games at, at the weekend. But also the key thing they did was they were a touring side. They'd do two big tours at, at Christmas and at Easter. And and would take, but they would take on the professional clubs uh, around the country in those tours, uh, rather than the sort of thing you're describing. 
Richardson, a fascinating discussion, fascinating to draw the comparisons between the development of football and cricket. There's um, a great deal more, I'm sure we could say, about both. Um, but for now, I must say thank you very much for joining us. Um, very strongly recommend your book uh, with the gripping title of Beastly Fury, The Strange Birth of British Football. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I think we should have you back for not a second innings, uh, a second, second half, a second half. It's a game of two halves. <laughs> thank you very much. It's Peter Braborn saying goodbye from a sunny but frosty Chiswick, West London. And, uh, and goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a still cold and sunny southeast London. Thank you.